Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. If I had to describe this, I'd say it's cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Because ag and life live side by side and sometimes overlap. I'm your host, Mark Flint, and this is Open Field Radio. Brought to you by Gowan Company. Jared Golden, Norwood, Ontario, Canada. Entomo Farms, cricket farming, cricket harvesting, cricket flour, cricket powder, roasted crickets, all for human consumption. We talk it all right now. You said you were having a visit from Time Magazine and Business Insider and somebody else. I don't remember who else as we talked. How'd that go? Great. Yeah, it was. There was a, a piece that came out in the National Post, which is Canadian, what Canada, one of Canada's national newspapers. And then um, I did an interview with Time Magazine with their uh, bureau chief who was in Rome, Italy, I believe. And the Business Insider uh, crew is coming out to our farm tomorrow. It uh, got postponed a week. That's awesome. You're getting that kind of uh, that kind of attention. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we've really been so lucky with respect to Earn Media, as I think I may have mentioned to you before, and uh, it just continues to roll in. So uh, we're very, very, very grateful for that. I realize it's like a minute, 30 seconds into the show, and I'm already talking over it, but I want to make sure you understand this. We're talking about edible bugs. That's right. Bugs raised for human consumption. You're going to hear all about it. And honestly, it's fascinating. It's not a B-horror movie or anything else. It's a fact. These things are being raised, and Jared runs Entomo Farms, North America's first and largest insect farm for human consumption. Little asterisk there. You are North America's first and largest insect farm. Is that right? Yes, currently that is true. That's quite a status, I think. Yeah, certainly as far as human grade insect farms go. I mean, some other guys have been farming, you know, cr- uh, crickets and worms for the bait trade and reptile food and stuff like that, but it's a totally different business. Well, what makes a- an insect uh, human grade, human consumption grade? That that is a, a, again a very good question. I think the two major pieces are the feed inputs and the conditions in which they're raised. So our farm looks more like a laboratory than a traditional kind of insect farm. And the feed inputs are non-GMO, organically certified. Um, We also have the highest level of food grade safety, which is called GFSI or BRC certification, which is required by most co-packers um, because it's a, a safety assurity of, you know, the fact that a light bulb glass wouldn't fall in or, you know, on the on the farming side and the processing side. And GSFI, is that correct? What is that? Yeah, GFSI, general food safety something. And then the, the kind of GFSI certification we have is BRC, which is the highest um, – type of, of, of GFSI certification. Okay. And, and it took about almost two years to put all the, the structures in place. And then you get audited, you know, by a, a third party. It's everything from your recall procedures. So do you capture every batch? Where do you store that batch? Do you label it? If we put a product on a grocery store shelf and someone gets sick and they find an issue with it, how do you recall all that product? All the food safety things. Everything, everything. How, how do you assure that nothing gets in the production line? 
how do you assure nothing gets in the actual farm where they're harvested? You know, on and on and on and on. Well, I've got to ask, I think the first question is, how did you, where did this come from? How did you get into edible insects? The, the wonderful story is that my two brothers had been farming insects for the reptile trade and the fish bait trade for about eight years. And um, in 2014, the United Nations and the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, put out a white paper, and the title of the white paper was Edible Insects, Future Prospects for Food and Seed Security. And the paper basically contemplated the fact that without insects entering the seed chain for livestock and the food chain for people, we'll continue to you know, have the planet be in trouble relative to climate change and the unfortunate impact that industrial livestock farming has on, on climate change. About the same time, there was a, a gentleman who's become a good friend, Pat Crowley, who was on Shark Tank, and he was pitching this idea of a protein bar, an energy bar, where the protein source came from crickets. And um, Mark Cuban jumped all over it, and he said, you know, this is fantastic. The future is going to be in this powder, if we can get it to become a powder as an ingredient. And... You know, I called my brothers up who had been looking at this space, you know, for, for a, a, a while. And I said, I think, you know, the three ducks or the three crickets are in a row here. You guys know how to farm these things. You've gotten your hands dirty. You've rolled up your sleeves. The UN and FAO are saying this has to happen. It's inevitable. And you have a smart entrepreneur like Mark Cuban who sees the retail or the consumer side of this working. So I said, why don't we try and raise some money? I've, I've always wanted to work with them. My, my background's in healthcare. I'm a chiropractor and a chiropractic educator. Okay. And um, done some entrepreneurial things on the side, but you know, never got to join my brothers. And we're all so tight. And we have a, a sister too, I, I must mention. But um, they, they you know, said, sure, like, why not? Why don't we see if we can raise some money and start what was North America's first human-grade insect farm. And that was, uh, you know, an investment in the tens of thousands, and it was 5,000 square foot space. And since then, you know, we've raised multiple millions and millions of dollars, and we're at 60,000 square feet. And, and by the end of the year, I think we'll probably be closer to 100,000. Well, you've got me going in two directions here, because what's really interesting is that's how I found you was through an article with Mark Cuban, as a matter of fact, and that idea. And I just started tracing it backwards, looking to find out where do these crickets come from and eventually found you guys. Now, from there goes the next big thing, which is 100% of everybody I've talked to, when I told them I was interviewing you today, they all said, what's the farm look like? Because, of course, you know, we think traditional farm, and uh, I think everybody wants to know, tell us what uh, an insect farm looks like. Uh, so uh, another wonderful question, Mark, you know, and uh, if I can just touch on this before I describe it, sure. that this is part of the FDA um, parameters around raising insects for human consumption is that they cannot they cannot be wild harvested. They have to be raised in a facility that's specifically dedicated to make food for people. Um, many, you know, three billion people a day eat insects all over the world routinely, and in places like Thailand and, and other parts of Asia, they're generally wild harvested. They're they're not grown in, in facilities. 
Um, although in some places they certainly are, and most and they're kind of outdoor facilities. Okay. What what we've done is we have basically employed a model where we retrofit abandoned chicken barns. So you know, in Canada with chicken quotas, there's been a lot of amalgamation of those quotas, and a lot of family farms, a lot of family barns are left idle. So in this particular region, it's about two hours northeast of Toronto. There are quite a few of these um, old chicken barns. So let's say the average one is 20,000 square feet. So, so we retrofit them to become insect farms or cricket farms. What that looks like is a big, big open space with a lot of corrugated um, cardboard. So if any of your listeners are familiar with buying wine or alcohol from a liquor store and you buy more than one bottle, they put it in a box and there's those kind of cardboard dividers. So we have those dividers stacked quite high, and they basically offer surface area and a space for the crickets to hide. On top of them is a feed tray with a, a running water trough. And when the crickets are hungry, they come and grab some food, drink some running water, and go back to their condos. They're, they're literally called cricket condos. No way. And um, yeah, the one, you know, I, I joke, the ones on the south side are a little bit more high in demand than, you know, the ones on the, on the north side. <laughs> right. I'm sure so, yeah. they are. <laughs> Real estate, it's always about yeah. location, location, yeah, exactly. location. Even in the cricket world. Even in the cricket world. So if you're as curious as I was as to what this whole thing looks like, head over to openfieldradio.com, scroll down to the photos section, and you'll see Jared was kind enough to send some photos over so you can get a look at what this whole thing is all about. And you know what? It's uh, much different than I thought. I'd be very curious. Is it different than you thought? Send me a message. Let me know. So, yeah, that's and there are companies that actually manufacture these products specifically for cricket rearing. Um, we are you know, looking at other alternatives, but that, that's basically what it looks like. Um, and then the crickets live about six weeks. So adult male crickets chirp, and uh, they chirp when they're, when they're ready to mate, basically. So we have a specific system for how we get them to uh, create eggs, basically, and then we take those eggs to an isolation room. And um, the cycle is just repeated over and over again. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Okay. So let's just say, hypothetical, a 20,000 square foot chicken farm converted to a cricket farm now has how many crickets in it? So about 35 million. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But, <laughs> and, and I'm worried about that one in my house that bugs me in the middle of the yeah. night, right? Good. Well, yeah, well, you know, my, my, brother, my brother Darren always says, like, you know, thousands of crickets chirping up north on a warm summer night is, is romantic and ethereal. One cricket in your bedroom can drive a guy crazy. Exactly. What does it sound, um, what's it sound like inside the farm? It sounds like a cricket symphony. I mean, when they're babies, again, at the beginning of their life cycle, you don't hear anything. But in the five-week mark, where they're adults and, and ready to mate, it's it's, it's a, you know like a cricket symphony. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Now you raise them, and at what point are they harvested or whatever? I don't know what the right word is to ask for. At what point do you use the cricket? So yeah, I think harvested is a fair word. Um, so basically, you know what? Again, maybe somewhat unique to this kind of livestock is. Given that their life cycle is only approximately six weeks, they do live a full, rich life. Because keep in mind that, like other farming practices, 
um, or, or cultivation, say, of, of a plant crop, um, yield is a very important metric in, in the business. So for us, we need to maximize the yields that we are, we're able to get from these individual barns. So the only way to do that is to give the crickets a completely pristine environment because they will be cannibalistic if they're under stress. They will lack thriving if they're under stress, and that would be devastating on our, our numbers and our throughput. So from an animal welfare perspective, you know, I can make the argument that the conditions are perfect and pristine and that they also live their entire life. If they were to live for six weeks, we harvest them just before they would die, one or two days before they would die anyway. And we, um, we harvest them at that time. You're listening to Open Field Radio. So here you go. EcoSwing from Gowan, USA, is an OMRI-approved botanical fungicide created using proprietary plant extracts. Gotta love it. EcoSwing is labeled for use on many different crops to control powdery mildew, botrytis, monolinia, alternaria, and several other diseases. And it's a global leader in fungicidal control of several key pathogens. EcoSwing makes a valuable addition to your integrated pest management program. Add another mode of action to your disease control defense and combat possible resistance from overuse of other actives. EcoSwing. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. So here's something fun. We hope you're enjoying Open Field Radio. And to continue that experience, we've added something really cool at openfieldradio.com. For each new episode, we now have playlists. That's right, music playlists that kind of highlight the spirit, the mood, and the thought of the episode. So click on there, check out the music, enjoy it, and hopefully it just helps you continue that experience that you know you love. We're looking out for you, because that's what friends do at openfieldradio.com. Open Field Radio. Once you start with crickets, you've got 35 million crickets on your farm. You'll always have crickets. You don't have to replenish that from another source. No, because we have a very specific system where we take certain, certain adult crickets, males and females, and we use them to breed the new cricket. So, so the females lay an egg, the male has an over uh, um, uh, depositor, and then the male fertilizes that egg, and then, um, you know, and then tens and tens of thousands of eggs come from one small area. And then we, we incubate those eggs in, in a room with specific temperature controls and other, other you know, environmental factors. Then we take those hatchlings, which are the size of a pinhead, and then we raise those into adults. And, and as I mentioned, we repeat that every six weeks. Now, this information you have and the way you're doing this came from your brothers raising insects prior to Entomo Farms, correct? Correct, yes. Primarily for the reptile trade, for, you know, people's bearded dragons and reptiles like that, as well as the fish bait trade. Sure. So the process was already, you guys already knew the process. Yes, yes. But, you know, you know, one of the interesting points is that if someone is selling crickets to someone going fishing, we may need, you know, 50 crickets. You could sell them at 10 cents a cricket, and that wouldn't be overwhelming. If we're, you know, in, in one pound of cricket powder, there's about 5,000 crickets. If I, if I charge 500 bucks for a pound of cricket powder, right. yeah. we wouldn't have a business. So They call you out of your mind. Yeah, correct. Although, yeah, so, so what we had to learn and, and, you know, where I give big credit to both my brothers is how do you completely radicalize 
how you raise cricket so that you can raise them in enough volumes um, so that we can have a price point that makes sense to the end consumer. And do you have more than one location, one more than one farm, or is it all happening in one place? No, currently we have three separate barns. And, um, you know, the next question for us as we look to expand really all over the world, because we have great interest from, from everywhere, is do we continue with this kind of model? Because it does obviously mitigate risk um, by having separate locations, but it's not necessarily the most efficient way as opposed to having one, say, 100,000 foot industrial space. Um so yeah, we're still we're still looking at that, but for now we have the three twenty thousand square foot barns with a couple others hedged um, for the growth that we anticipate and that we're that we have right now. So you're looking at a hundred million crickets, is that right? Between your three locations? Yeah, but but that's conservative, Mark. Already, you know, my brother and some entomologists that are working with us have figured out. Um, some intellect, like it's kind of IP, but ways in which they are improving those yields a great deal. And I think we'll get to double, if not triple that very soon. That is amazing. Now, you you were talking about the condos and you said they had food and water. What do they eat? So basically they'll eat anything, right? They'll eat cardboard, they'll eat whatever. Right. But, um, we, we don't feed them cardboard. We basically, uh, yeah. They, we use four basic grains and, um, and the running water and a vitamin mix, and that's basically it. And they're happy. Um, fish, uh, fish meal has been, and, you, you know, fish meal in and out. Um, right now we have a feed formulation that we've perfected, um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's working well. But it's, it's basically a, a grain-based diet. Eventually, I think the hope is to look at you know, upcycling um, pre- and post-consumer waste that's dehydrated and uh, using a dry, dehydrated consumer waste, food waste, that uh, that can go into our feed systems. Obviously, the bigger picture of this is not like, hey, let's start a cricket farm because this will be fun to watch people eat crickets. The idea is we're talking world populations, food supply, sustainable food. Yeah, I mean, forgive me for this analogy because it may seem really bold to your listeners, but... I would like to make the argument that what water is to liquids, insects are to food. Meaning that no scientist in the world can tell you that water is bad for you. And water isn't good for rich people and bad for poor people or vice versa. Insects, as we learn, as we do more nutritional profiles and more research on the health benefits, is mind-boggling. And it's not just a protein story. Um, for example, they're extremely high in prebiotic fiber. And one early study has shown that the prebiotic fiber in the crickets grows probiotic bacteria associated with diminishing heart disease. We also have seen studies showing that concentrations of macro and micronutrients like iron, magnesium, manganese, zinc, and copper are not only higher in concentration compared to red meat, but possibly far more bioavailable, meaning that they're absorbed into the gut, you know, much more efficiently. So anybody who's interested in their health, who, who wants to get more bang for their buck out of their food, you know, would consider throwing some cricket powder into a smoothie or into a veggie chili or something like that. And this isn't 
got anything to do with anti-meat. I, I eat a hamburger every once in a while. It's sure. just about learning about other types of food that may be unfamiliar to the Western palate, what they offer in terms of nutritional profile, and what they offer in terms of the sustainability piece. And it's just, you know, about balance. And everybody added a bit of bugs into their life, um, you know, once a week as an alternative to the traditional meat proteins, not only would that likely benefit them a great deal from a health perspective, but it sure would also benefit the planet from a, um, you know, energy and, and green uh, climate change kind of perspective. Well, there's a quote I found on your website that says, a family of four eating food made with insect protein, if they eat it one day a week for a year, it saves the earth 650,000 liters of fresh water. Now, that's just one day a week for a year. So that is basically compared to traditional um, industrial meat. Uh-huh. And it, it has partly to do with the feed conversion ratios. So unfortunately, and this is partly why um, animals like cows have the environmental footprint they have, is because of their feed conversion. So, you know, data suggests that cows may convert 10% of what they eat into edible food for us. We think, you know, we're, we're between 75 and 90% of the food that we feed crickets being converted into food for us. So if we take the same grains, the same grains that you would feed a cow or the, the same hay that needs water to, um, to grow and a certain amount of rainforest or, or forest to be cut down to grow those feed inputs and, and then naturally or, 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 or through well water, water them, um, you know, when you compare a 10% conversion of that into protein, there's 90% conversion into protein. And like I said, not just protein, um, and prebiotic fiber as well. You know, both certainly have the macro and micronutrients. Again, the um, digestibility, um, you know, may differ, but that's, that's where that water savings kind of equation comes from. It's largely um, mitigated by the feed conversion ratios and, and how much feed is needed to create the same amount of protein the human uh, to consume on your site at com, there are a whole bunch of infographics there that kind of break this down visually and it's pretty impressive very much so thank you yes and certainly we you know we look forward to doing more life cycle assessments analyses and and drilling down deeper and and other com you know doing other comparisons but um for now, that, that's certainly what we know, and it's, it's established research. Is the biggest hurdle in this, I, would, I guess I should say commercially, is the fact you're selling edible insects? Is that a hard concept for people to get by? A hundred percent. I mean, you, one could say it's the elephant in the room, but in this case, it's the cricket. Right. You know, keep in mind that although our business started that way, it's not the only kind of vertical that we're involved in right now. In fact, the most exciting piece of our business right now is the pet food uh, trade and specifically dog treats and dog food. And that is a, a wonderfully, um, wonderful emerging part of our business because it's, it's a no-brainer. And, um, you know, most dogs are natural foragers. They eat insects anyway. It's mm-hmm. a natural part of their diet. And we can, you know, offload some of the traditional meats that other people in the world could benefit from instead of, you know, pets in, in the West and just 
as from a sustainability perspective, um, you know, it's a wonderful alternative to other traditional meat proteins. Um, and uh, and that pet food space for us is an exciting space. Well, what's the, I guess, what's the best introduction? What's the best way to step into this? If you're a person like me that, you know, prefers my my beef and my chicken and my fish, how do I take the first step? What's the best path into trying this? You know, generally, I think baking, because um, you can replace, say, up to 20% of the flour in traditional baking. So if you were going to make cookies or banana bread or something like that, and you wanted to add, you know, this great boost of protein and fiber and all these other wonderful macro micronutrients to your banana bread, Throw it in. Throw it in a banana bread recipe, or a cookie recipe, or a cake recipe. My my general way is that I put it in a smoothie almost every morning, and um, you know I use like an almond milk or hemp milk, some frozen berries, a, a tablespoon of peanut butter, and a few tablespoons of cricket powder, and it's yummy and delicious. Um, and then I've even seen people, you know, make a kind of flour with egg batter to crust a chicken breast with. Oh, interesting. So instead of, you know, having two chicken breasts, you may only have one because you have this very rich, nutritionally dense crust. Um, on one of those, um, you know, I've seen people take the whole cricket, and, and I've done this myself, um, and sprinkle them on a salad. So instead of the croutons, which don't offer much health benefit, although they may be yummy, um, you basically have what I call nature's crouton, which is a dehydrated cricket, and um, you get all the crunch factor you ever wanted, and uh, they're yummy. Wait, did he just compare a cricket to a crouton? That little cube of bread roasted in your oven in oil and herbs and awesomeness? Jared, I'm on your team. I'm open-minded. I'm loving this. But a crouton, come on. I eat them out of the bag. Um, I've seen them, you know, also added in, in a veggie wrap or a wrap with a tortilla shell with some vegetables in it. The beauty of it is it is so versatile in, in almost every respect. Not, as, not as, you know, obviously ingredients or food, but when you look at it as an ingredient um, into foods that we already eat, it's, it, it doesn't change them much. Um, I've seen a great chef from New York named Joseph Yoon kind of take traditional foods like Japanese sushi and sprinkle, you know, the crickets on top of it of a piece of tuna with a little glaze on it. Um, and, and really amazing, creative, beautiful uh, culinary art, really. Um, and, uh, you know, and for me, the extension of that beauty is that if we're looking at, you know, therapeutic foods for, for the have-nots and, and, the other people that may be a little disenfranchised from a food security perspective, you know, if it may be some people down south that, that use tortilla, they can add the powder to the tortilla shell and get a lot more nutritional bang for their buck. Or First Nations people in, in northern Canada that make a bread called bannock, they can still make their traditional foods, add this ingredient as a complement and increase the, the, the nutritional punch. Or say people in Africa that eat a pup meal, where they could add this ingredient to the pup meal and really improve the nutritional profile of those foods. Well, obviously the response is is obviously been well because you're you've got a hundred million crickets you're raising. But in North America, what's the, what's the response like uh, locally here? That you know, North America continues to be our largest customer. 
We do export all over the world, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, Europe. Um, we've exported to South America, South Africa. But um, that said, you know, the U.S. Um, is, is likely our biggest customer. And, um, you know, the growth has been slow and steady. Um, we, like I said, we continue to add capacity. We continue to basically work at, at thresholds um, of, of the inventory we have. And um, we've grown n- nice and steady as we've educated the market, as we've done research to, to back up, you know, why people should consider this. Uh, we're, we're very excited about future research and, and research remains a big part of our you know, ethos and, and um, priority. And, um, you know, the pet food space kind of keeps growing. And, and as I mentioned to you the other day, the, the other place we're really excited about is the insect FRAS, which is spelled Frank Robert A-S-S, um, FRAS, which is a natural organic fertilizer that, again, research seems to show may outperform current organic fertilizers on the market sustainably farmed, dry, basically odorless, and um, seems to have a ton of benefit, not only on plants and production of things like fruit, but on soil regeneration and the ability to potentially convert sand back into soil as, as, a, as a conduit for, for that as, as a soil amender not just a, a plain fertilizer. So along with byproducts from farming crickets and the things, the benefits that come with that, there's also another thing. Like how about a secondary revenue stream for your farm? This takes me back to Open Field Radio Season 1, Episode 6, Crawfish Farming, right? And how rice farmers were using crawfish as a secondary revenue stream, farming crawfish in rice fields with rice straw. There's some real parallels here. In some respect, I think for me, a a kind of picture to paint may be, you know, a corn farmer, someone farming corn who has a 20,000 square foot chicken barn on the property. They take all the leftover stalks from the corn that that aren't sold into the corn system. That's used to feed the crickets. The crickets are then used to sell to the chicken farmer across the road as a feed input, and the poop is used to fertilize the cornfield. And, and you have a complete circular economy where none of that stuff really needs to be transported very far. It's all kept incredibly locally, so we're not using gasoline or other, other you know, carbon-burning systems to get that stuff from one place to another. And you create a wonderful, wonderful circular economy. But yeah, there, there are many other utilities to the substrate from potentially glue because the cricket's exoskeleton, the chitin is very sticky. So could it be used as a glue? Say when you're making a consumer packaged food, then this can be a natural food based glue, um, to, to many other things that, that we never thought we would be doing. Um, that uh, has nothing to do with kind of pets or, or livestock or um, food, more industrial use, potentially like in, in you know, creating a pace where if someone had a deep wound in, in, a, in a, say, a crisis like an earthquake, and you could use that you know, while you're waiting for a doctor to come and stitch it up, um, could you glue a wound together with something like this? So, yeah, we're, we're just at the very beginning of understanding you know, the, the myriad, the multitude of benefits that 
insects, and in this case, crickets could have um, to better humanity, feed us better, and, and improve the circumstances of our planet. Are crickets the only sustainable edible insect you raise? No, we raise um, in a very in a much smaller capacity mealworms, and then on the other side of my brother's business, reptile side, they raise um, three other super worms and wax worms. But um, you know, to come full circle back to the name of our company, Antomo Farms, which is the roots of insect. Um, our goal is to eventually learn to scale up many more species that have different nutritional benefits, flavor profiles, and um, you know, opportunity to benefit the planet. Now, there's a retail side to this as well. Talk to me about the products you have and just the different things that are available to the consumer. Yeah, so our core competence really is as a wholesaler, as an ingredient wholesaler. Okay. So our, our you know, CPG food customers have made products like or make products like protein bars, crackers, pasta, rice noodles, chips, um, like, potato, like forms of potato chips. Um, and then we have a line of, um, you know, the plain powder that can be used, as I said, as an ingredient. Then the whole roasted crickets and um, seasoned whole roasted crickets, so like barbecue, salt and vinegar. They come in barbecue flavor? They really do? Yeah, they do. And I can tell you something that if I put, you know, some barbecue chips in front of you that we broke up into smaller sizes and some barbecue crickets, it wouldn't be that easy to tell which one you're eating. Sure. They're they're just (laughs) crunchy. That is amazing. Crunchy, dry barbecue substrate. Uh, Obviously, the health benefits would be different. Right. I was going to say, do they they come in cool ranch? Not yet, but but I think we're going to do a social media thing for people to suggest the next three flavors that we should season. Oh, my goodness. So how curious are you now? You ready to try them? You know what? I'm going to post a link at openfieldradio.com. If you're that curious, and I am that curious, there'll be a link, take you right to the retail side of this, and you can try them for yourself. Man, oh man, what an adventure. Okay, let's go right to the heart of this question then. What do they taste like? So in in plain form, they taste very similar to kind of bits and bites or a shrimp chip. They they have a mushroomy kind of undertone. You thought he was going to say chicken, didn't you? Me too. Flavor has a lot to do with how they're dehydrated. So we use oven roasting. So if you think of the kind of flavor of a coffee bean that's being roasted uh-huh. versus an unroasted coffee bean. Okay, sure. Whereas if you do freeze drying or air drying, it doesn't kind of have that roasty, toasty disposition to it. Uh-huh. And um, and then the powder is, is very similar. It's very earthy, natural kind of uh, flavor. So when you mix it, in the ratios I suggested earlier into a banana bread or a chili, you won't taste it at all. You wouldn't even know it's there. If, if you start to use much higher ratios in the food, you'll, you'll absolutely notice it. Um, and, and remember that it wouldn't be water soluble because it's got a lot of omega-3 oils in it and, and a lot of fiber. So you can't like put the powder in a water shaker and just shake it up. So, it's it's very likely one day in the future there'll be an isolate, you know, the protein isolated from the oils and fiber so that it could be acting like a whey protein isolate or other vegetable protein isolates and um, just 
mixed with water and shaken. But uh, yeah, so we, we have customers, you know, people who love the flavor and they want us to try and enhance the flavor. And we have other people who would like us to mitigate the, the flavor so that it, that it has less of that crickety kind of flavor to it. Crickety flavor. I'm going to Google that. Open Field Radio. Like, share, subscribe. More of Open Field Radio after this. Are you looking for a broad-spectrum botanical insecticide that controls key insect pests on outdoor food crops? Well, look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Proven effective in university tests as an insect growth regulator, repellent, and anti-feedant listed by OMRI for use in organic production. Accredited by the USDA NOP, it meets new organic guidelines, fully compatible for use in an IPM program, and can be applied up to the day of harvest. Tank makes flexibility compatible with many commonly used pesticides. So what about that broad-spectrum botanical insecticide you're looking for? Look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, Jared Golden from Entomo Farms. So let's go back to the harvesting for a minute. You said they li- they li- their lifespan is six weeks and you harvest them somewhere right at the end of that life cycle. And of course, we're talking a farm, and I know there's not a guy on a horse cutting them out of the herd. How do you know where where the harvestable crickets are compared to everybody else in a hundred million of them? So every every room or every space is data driven. So we know exactly when they were put in there, what their age is. You know, the, the, the stuff is followed very very precisely, and when when um, it's about six weeks, you know, a few days before that. The eco-farmers there know what signs to look for. And then we basically take those condos where they're all living in and we shake them into big plastic bins. And that, that just has all the crickets come into those big plastic bins. And then we use a methodology to kill them basically very quickly. It's almost instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And then we use oven roasting to dehydrate them because that's what we're trying to do, get all the moisture out. And then they're either converted into powder or left as whole roasted or seasoned. Talk to me about your team. You've got your brothers, which you have mentioned. Who else is on your team that helps keep this thing moving in the right direction? So so thank God we added talent to our team because if it was just left up to me and my brothers, I'm not sure we would be this far <laughs> along. Um, and the, the two key principles are our COO, Kelly Hagen, who joined us about four years ago now, I think. And most recently, last year, we hired our first CEO, and her name is Lauren Keegan. And um, basically, you know, a company founded by three not-so-smart brothers is now being run by two very smart women. Nice job. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, we have this dedicated team of eco-farmers. It is a tough environment to farm. It's very humid in these barns. Um, and this, this is not a job you just do for the paycheck. Um, you have to be committed um, to the broader mission of our business, which is to make a substantive change to the planet and people's health. And then, you know, the, on the logistics side, you know, the customer service side, the food packaging side, um, customer relations, we just have, you know, a wonderful team of about another 20, 25 people that, um, that are just awesome. And, yeah, of course, we, we wouldn't be where we are without any of them. What's amazing is when I reached out to you, I, I had tried a long time ago, months and months ago, 
via email uh, through your site or through something, I reached out. And that's fine. And it took a little while, didn't hear anything. So I found you on Instagram and I shot a message out on Instagram and just said, hey, somebody talk to me. Who do I connect with? And ultimately, I connected with you. And what's interesting is, as I look through your site, I thought, wow, I connected with you, and yet you have consultants, and there's PR things and other stuff going on, and yet I wound up right with you. It was actually pretty seamless, and I was very impressed that I could get right to, you know, one of the three, and uh, with, no, with no pressure at all. It was great. Yeah, no, we're definitely hands-on, and I must say, your email must have gone to my junk mail. That's the only possibility <laughs> I can think of. I'm very used to um, it. Yeah, <laughs> but um, we actually do have a new marketing manager we've hired and, and she's just come on board and she's doing amazing things. But yeah, you know, we're all very hands-on and, and that kind of stuff I handled and my, my wife, Stacy was involved for a while um, on that side of things with our social media and my brother Darren's wife, Karen, was very involved in our, we called her our Ento chef and creating a bunch of recipes that we Fun. have on our website. Fun. So it was really uh, definitely a family business all around. So if someone wants to find out more about you, where do they go? Where do they look you up? They can start with the website at entomofarms, with an S, dot com. They can reach out via the Contact Us page. Um, and, of course, you know, we are on um, Facebook and um, Instagram, and we try to keep very current and, you know, there's so much news and, and wonderful information that comes out almost on a daily basis about our space. Um, very exciting things people are up to, new products that are being created. Um, and uh, so it's a very current, um, dynamic social media presence. Um, but certainly they can also reach out directly through the contact us. That will come straight to the executive team with questions and, um, yeah, other other insights or anything people would like to offer. We're open to listening and hearing and, and you know, working with everyone to create this, this awesome platform. Again, that, that's like water, just benefits everybody. Any parting thoughts? Anything you want the world to know that's on your mind where, uh, where your world is concerned? No, I just thank you so much for, for reaching out. And I, I'm not sure if I mentioned to you before how grateful we are for all the different kinds of media that have reached out over over the years, newspapers, magazines, television stations, radio um, personalities, podcasters like yourself. You know, you couldn't pay for this kind of what's called earned media. Um, everyone's taken such a positive, open-minded approach to, to what we're trying to do. And, um, you know, we, we are forever grateful for, for everyone, including yourself, for caring to kind of tell our story, put it out there, um, and and ask us the questions, some challenging questions, some interesting questions. And um, again, I would just really like to say thank you and, and thank you to your listeners for um, for listening in. And uh, I hope we pique their curiosity. And uh, yeah, and that they'll reach out with any questions. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved, no duplication or redistribution without permission.